Bianca Elmir. I am from Australia. Right, lovely. Right, Bianca, how are you? How's life? What's going on at the moment? Well, it's COVID-19, as everyone understands, and it's there's just so much uncertainty and it's killing my plans to do anything because um, I, I obviously I'm a boxer, so I'm just waiting to fight for this world title, which is very uncertain. And the dates are changing, the states are changing, everything changes and the promoters are scrambling to try and make something happen, but they're not, you know, they're not health professionals. So they don't actually know what they're, they're talking about. So all the boxes are waiting for these promoters. And so we're all, li- li- we're all living in the dark at the moment and scrambling to try and make something of it. But yeah, it's just incredibly frustrating. But that, that's a depressing thing to start the day. But yes, my day has been great. Thank you. In the UK, they've started, the, the biggest promoters like Eddie Hearn and Frank Warren, they've started having fights behind the scenes, you know, with no fans. So that's just started last couple of weeks in the UK. Yeah, and in those high-level promotions where they have TV rights, it it is worth it for the promoter. But on low-ticket items where they're just getting... Uh, you know, humans on seats, they have to make it a lucrative lucrative enough promotion for them to make money. And unless they've got a lot of human traffic, they won't put it on. So everyone that's not on the TV promotion is left stranded. I could see you on a big promotion. You've got, you've got everything. You're, you know, you've got that, you're beautiful, You've got that aggression in terms of um, that boxing ability. You've got a good record so far. I think it's, mm-hmm. I think your time will come. I just hope you keep going. And I think your time will come. I think someone will pick you up. I'm thinking more America side than the UK, but I think your time will come. I know. And, you know, like just recently, and I'm not saying anything bad about this girl. I can't even remember her name that knocked out the chick in seven seconds. What's her name? Um, from was she from the UK? No, she's American. She just put she put down the girl, this her opponent, and apparently in all of boxing history, it's the fastest time to put a put a person down, male or female. But I looked at her opponent, and she was a last minute call in because her <laughs> her opponent had obviously pulled out. So and. I heard the promoter saying that this girl had only had four rounds in in the ring. It hadn't gone the distance. She was five and zero, oh, but five and zero oh with with girls that had always lost their fights. This chick that she fought, um, it's super bad. Her name is super bad. This girl that she fought was eighteen and zero, oh, so she had you know unlimited rounds you know experience in the ring. So the matchup was so disgusting, you know, like even when the bell rang, this girl didn't even hardly move out of her corner. She looked so unconfident. Her hands were down. When the bell went, you know, like I know with my fights, I haven't had a lot of, you know, I haven't had a lot of professional fights. I've had a lot of amateur fights. But as soon as the bell goes, you know, you're out and you're ready to war, you know. The bell went and this, this woman didn't even know where she was. It looked like she was like, looking in the ring like she was in a library or something. She just looked so unconfident. 
And I just thought that's so sad. And, like, that's the story at the moment with boxing is you've got this mismatched fights because people are scrambling to make a card and then you're trying to call out fights and people aren't taking fights. And I understand why people watch MMA, you know, like where at UFC you can't dodge people. I can understand because boxing just becomes a little bit of a, a bit of a joke, you know, like why would you even watch it? People don't, people are constantly running from each other and the real fights never happen. That, that is, unfortunately, that is true. I think the good thing about women's boxing, and I'm looking at it from a different point of view, where I think the ladies box you face the best in your country similar records or similar talent you will outshine the men you might have fight of the night i don't know if they do fight of the night in boxing anymore but uh, i know they do it in mma and i see women's boxing could make that step up where a lot more women like yourself are going to get known are going to be a brand in its uh, a brand in itself and then you will get the the big move to top rank, to Eddie Hearn, to The Zone. I don't know what the biggest promotion in Australia is, um, but I know the big ones across the world. Uh, so that's that's my hope for women's boxing. What about yourself? Where do you think the sport's going to go for the ladies after COVID? See, I don't, I'm not sure because it seems like the whole boxing promotion is quite corrupt in its essence. So you can try and kind of reshape different elements of it but it seems like the best boxers aren't always with the best promoters and it's all about getting bums on seats and bringing in profit and unless you have some kind of appeal whatever appeal that is that the promoter is looking for you're really pushing like up a hill that's what that's a that's what we say in this i know that's what you say the reds i don't know how to change that because Promoters are always looking for boxers to sell tickets to fights. And the boxer, the business brand seems completely off. The boxer should just focus on the fight. And, of course, by their skill and talent, they'll bring in people to watch their fights. I completely agree. That's what I believe in. But the promoter, in all of my experience, puts pressure on the athlete to be a marketer, a you know, a, a um, PR manager, a tickets manager, like all of these different elements coming out the one fighter and they, it shouldn't be like that. And look, I'm not speaking at the same level of what you're talking about with your earlier question because, you know, women should be able to break through that. I just think that there are so many limitations with breaking through to the top rank, that even if you are the best fighter, you're not necessarily gifted with the same opportunities. And and I think that's wrong. And I think that there are other sports that have been able to, to transcend that, like MMA is an example where if you're a good fighter, you'll be set up with a good promoter. That's from what I understand of the sport anyway. You know, I don't think I answered your question. I hope, I hope that makes sense. No, no. Some of the things I agree with you because what we're seeing a lot of in the UK is, say for example, you had a decent amateur background. You weren't great, but you weren't bad. You were in the middle. So recently, well, not recently, last three years ago, uh, we had a um, a fighter from Leeds called uh, Josh Warrington. He's now world champion, but he started off in the small house shows like yourself. 
going from town to city and building his brand but he didn't go uh, he didn't have he didn't go to the olympics and win a gold medal he didn't have a massive fan following he built that over time and unfortunately i think the pressures that are put on fighters in the small house shows is very wrong because these small house promotions they don't have the marketing capabilities of promoting their own events and i think that's why they put a lot of pressure on fighters saying right if you sell 100 tickets you'll get 40% of of the revenue and that's kind of how it works uh, i'm i'm saying 40% that could be completely um uh, that could be completely false it might be less than that to be fair 12% right yeah it that's that's probably more realistic and i have a massive issue with that because i don't think that's fair at all and it doesn't reflect the hard work and dedication that a fighter goes through for that particular 3 months or whatever they've gone through to make way to get themselves in the best possible shape and these are the problems with the sport and then at the top level you've got you've not got the the best guys are not fighting the best guys and it's ruining the sport and that's why i think mma has made uh, so many leaps and bounds because Dana White of the UFC who's probably the best at it he makes the best fight the best i, I don't know um, what mma is like in australia but when we're looking mm-hmm. at the us market there's a reason why people are attracted to the ufc and that's because you get the best fights Yeah and therefore you're looking at a more authentic matchup so that you're not seeing really disgusting like matchups where it's so incredibly off and it's really unfair and it's always matched according to the champion in the room so if it's matched to their favor that is not an equal fight therefore it's not entertaining because like even and, and I'll go back to the example of Superbad is that when she knocked her out that wasn't something to be, to bring pride or hysteria that was like i felt really ashamed about it i just thought oh i feel so sorry for this poor woman that's just been the call up that's probably got been given a couple of thousand dollars as this like last minute gig and she fights this incredible fighter that has 20 fights over her and what is that what for like a, a like, as entertainment for people who know the sport will recognize that it's not authentic none of that is and i guess the attractiveness of staying in the amateurs for so long is you can't dodge dodge anyone you can't um superficially create a um record stacked to your favor like you, you don't choose that you know the best of the best wins and they have to fight fight each other if you want to get to that level and it seems like professional boxing is about 50 years behind and it's not progressive and it's not evolving and it's set it's still set up to the old school the old um you know old power that stays in there which is a small group of old men that maneuver space they're the ones that benefit you've got people like on the bottom trying to chase for carrots in the way like please for these opportunities and selling their just to get on these tickets and you know working odd jobs and casual labor just in order to like make the fight and the promoter is the one that operates on this really hierarchical structure who gets the benefits at the end and 
you're enslaved to this system that is honestly so old and it needs to evolve. And I don't know if that's like getting more women involved. Obviously, I'm a feminist. I think that that could probably like shake shake things up a little bit. But the structure is old-fashioned. It doesn't benefit anyone. And if we keep operating like that, we're just going to keep losing people. No wonder everyone's going to MMA because it's filling a vacuum that in the in the absence of boxing stepping up. I don't know how you see the um, the judging in boxing. Um, I know you've been robbed, but I don't understand how. I think it's usually three judges per fight. I could be wrong, but normally I see three. I don't understand how they. You're fighting. It's your fight, and they're looking up, but you can't really see what's mm. going on. They're not looking down, and um, I noticed that when I went to my first uh, amateur fight a number of years ago, and I just thought. I have to stand to see actually what's going on. And these guys are sat down. I don't know if you can call it experience, but how can someone see through the ropes? They're going round in a circle. And how can you see what punch has been thrown? And the rules of boxing, in my opinion, especially when it comes to point scoring, which punch will land you the most points or which punch is more powerful? And there are certain things which absolutely get on my nerves. Some of the criteria needs to change. I don't think the judges should be outside um, around the ring, uh, especially for large promotions. They should be in a room somewhere and watching it. And um, maybe even looking at the statistics as well, if you can make it, uh, if you can get them, like how many punches have been thrown. It's like things like that really annoy me. I don't know how you see the judging. Uh, do you see? Do you prefer the current system, or do you think it, there should be changes? No, no, I really agree with what you're saying. And those suggestions are things that people should at least entertain for a moment. You know, like that's just me and you speaking on a right, you know, on an interview, right? Imagine if people really were invested and were looking at how it can evolve. And honestly, everything you're saying is right. It's like it's so stagnated in a system that maybe worked in the 1950s or even earlier than that. But as, what you're saying is absolutely correct. There are so many limitations with the seating. Five judges, I may have this wrong, I've forgotten now. And again, it's subjective, like what they're looking at from the angle, from what they can't see. Like what is it that they can't see? Are they keeping that in mind? Who is it that they've already got favoured? Do, do they already know a name? Has someone done a walkout that they're looking at more even, you know, subconsciously, they don't even realise it. Are they looking at the potential champion? So that champion is 10 points ahead, even before the bell is rung. You know, there's, there's so many subjective things that are happening that it's really difficult to get the right decision, you know, apart from a knockout, you know, a knockout or someone, unless it's tilted completely wrong where one person is completely, you know, overrun the other person. You're going to always have these questions. Now, should it be about punches scored from what i understand boxing is scored according to ring domination defense tactical strategies power general skill so depending on which judge values what thing you know like one judge might value footwork so they just may happen to point that more than the other person you know some person may enjoy a short fighter that's just fighting in the inside so they're going to just immediately look at the person and subconsciously favor it so there's just again there's so there's so many subjective things there 
And unfortunately, with the, with the Australian experience, most of these judges haven't played, they haven't boxed, let alone half like they've even ever played a sport, to be honest. They're, they are non-sporty, middle-aged men in white suits scoring things with a little clipboard and I'm being really judgmental and negative and please forgive me if you're a judge from Australia. Don't score me wrong in my next fight. But a lot of them haven't even played a sport, let alone how to score a boxing fight. You know, you need to at least – I think that the prerequisite to being a judge is – you need to have boxed, like surely. That has to be the first thing. You need to have played the sport when you're scoring it. At least as an amateur, at least, so that you have some kind of experience. But it's pros. Like, I think you need to know what you're looking at. You can't learn that through a slideshow. You can't learn that through some a paper, you know, some, pa- some paper called... What is it that you need to look at as a boxer? You need to know what it is to feel and move and what it is you need to value of what it is to be a champion. Like, what, what are you marking? I just think that it's too difficult unless you've been in the sport. So your world title fight has been delayed. How much of a camp did you have until it got delayed? I think I had about maybe two months, yeah, maybe a bit less. I was already on weight, so weight wasn't an issue for me. It was just about so it was about preparing for a southpaw. So I had to just find southpaws everywhere I went. And in my region, there were there weren't southpaws, so I was scrambling to find them. I was just I was just contacting everyone that I knew to find southpaws. So it was more about preparing for a southpaw. But in terms of um, I, I think that my power base is always very strong. I don't really need to work on that too much. I did spend about six weeks doing strength and conditioning in a gym. I was doing, you know, deadlifts, chin-ups, explosive things that I was doing in the gym, shoulder presses, just just those little very basic things that I had a little set up. I was doing that three times a week. Then I was starting to build up my sprint sessions. My cardio is pretty good. I think that was that was relatively good. And then I was just doing like a, a, a few, um, one or two fitness circuits and then where where I could I was doing sparring with South Force. But I was feeling pretty solid, like my pad work was my pad work was good. And then I was just hungry, like I just wanted to fight someone. I just wanted to like get in front of someone and punch on and just try and punch someone's face in. I was just like I was ready for it, you know? I really wanted to do it. And now I'm just like a frustrated human being that I think that, you know, all I want to do now is just punch someone in the head. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God I'm not facing you. What um outside camp? How do you just keep ticking over? Do you just go four or five times a week, or how does it work when you're not in camp? When I'm not in camp, I become and I'll be honest with you, I become quite despondent. I just I can get into quite self-destructive modes if I want to, and I'm currently in one right now. What What do when, you mean? I just throw everything out. I just become. Uh, I probably, I probably get into a like a space where I feel it. I feel a bit of pity and it's like I just, I so I. It gives me. I just become. I don't look after my sleep, my health, my training. I drink alcohol, and everything just is thrown out. And I just, I'm not, I'm not goal orientated, and 
you know, I'm a spiritual person. I, I, I believe in God. I connect to a lot, a lot. I just like a lot of, a lot of my stuff. I don't, I was just talking to someone today about it. And I think that training is like a religion for me in that it gives me discipline and focus, especially when life can be inconsistent. And so when I don't have a goal, I find it difficult to remain focused on something. So I don't train for fun because I've been so can train for something, you know. As soon as you take the goal away from me, I just feel like I shouldn't train. And I think it's a self-destructive, like maybe a bit of a victim mentality I have. And it's a story I'm telling myself. So, But I think that maybe I have those moments in life so that I can bounce off those and like kind of recreate myself. It's like I'm reborn in some new version of myself, but I sometimes have to take myself low in order to get back up. And I know that's a really good question. Have you ever thought about, say, for example, after your fight's over, thinking, right, I'll just train all the time? but not as much right so I'll train every day I'll go six times a week and I'll give myself a day off have you ever thought about just mixing it up just to just for your own sanity and your own progression yeah I know what you're saying I think because I've tied up training so much with being a champion that unless I've got the goal of champion I can't train and that's like maybe an obsessive compulsive thing I have so and I, I hear what you're saying because I think it's really important to have training in your life because that's what it is to be human. Like in order for you to regulate emotions and process your life, like you have to train. I think everyone needs that. Everyone needs movement of some kind. I've got a high, like I know my nervous system is elevated, you know, so training keeps me in check. Once you take that away, like I'm very hyperactive, that energy goes elsewhere and what I've found in my experience is that the best way to source my energy is definitely is in training. Once you take that, I, it's like I, I, I do become quite net, like a bit destructive in that energy. But I'm still trying to like recreate my relationship with training. My relationship with training has been like an abusive partner. Like it's been all or nothing. You know? Unless I give everything, it's like means nothing. And boxing is like my um, abusive husband that I never had. <laughs> Well, <laughs> something to think about um, for yourself. But if you train, say, for example, all year round, you could take last minute fights with girls. You could be like, you know what? Oh, Promoter yeah. say, listen, I'm ready. You'll absolutely demolish them all. I think it's just really hard because I'm living in this like regional town. It's like a village in Australia. Everything seems so slow here. We're so isolated in Australia. We're so far away. I can spend hundreds of hours on my footwork like one thing that I really pride myself on is my defense and my footwork I feel like I've just had on point you know I've spent years like 10 years of just meticulous training in the mirror of obsessive like how to just every detail about footwork drills and you know and I've got that like I really back myself for that and all of that I feel is just there's just so many dead ends that no matter how much my inspiration is it's like Unless you have the resources around you, all of that goes to nothing. You know, like I can have as much enthusiasm as possible, but unless I've got those fights happening, and I guess I was really excited about the world title. Of course, that was gone. Apparently, I've got the world title again, and possibly in October. Then it keeps changing, and now I've just decided not to listen to promoters because they don't even know what they're talking about. Don't worry. Neither do governments, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm rambling. 
everyone's scrambling. Personally, think small house shows, especially the shows that you participate in, won't be back until next year. If I'm being honest with you, that's my personal opinion. Definitely, and you know, I would be fine with that. Like, if the promoter just said, "Let's just organise stuff till January next year," I'd be like, "Thank you very much for that confirmation. Let me set some stuff out." But all of this changing of dates, it's like a bit of torture, and it's really irresponsible. And I would prefer promoters just to be straight and not, and because the boxes are the ones that are sacrificing everything. That's really no, definitely. I think like how I would do it in your country is. Find a local government that would let me let me hold an event on a beach, set up a ring on a beach,、uh, social distance it, and then just say, right, we are fighting. This is the venue. You've got six weeks.、Uh, yeah. Who's interested? I think something like that. It's a bit like what Dana White's doing, but you guys could do it in Australia easily. Yeah, see, that requires promoters to step out of the square, and at the moment they're staying in these like little sports clubs and. Staying very safe and having their regular like、uh, all of the boring. I just find it so boring to be honest. But like your、um, example would be amazing. Like I would love to do that. I mean, I was fighting in Spain, an outdoor arena, and I remember fighting in the amateurs. And I remember just thinking, this is so much fun. You know, I just think that I I love that. And you want something a bit different. And social distance distancing is going to be around for ages. So why like? You just people have to adapt. We're not going to be in a small venue. Like the more people just understand that, then we can just like think outside the square and do things. But I think realistically, for me, I'm going to have to find a TV promotion because for, at least for this year, you know, we're in July. I mean, that is so far away, and I'm worried about my absence in. You know, it, the more time for me is bad. The more the more time I lag is it's negative for me. You just need to keep trading, kid. You'll be fine. I hope so. I'm really interested in your name, your surname, especially Bianca Elmir. Talk to me about that. Where is your family from, or were you born in a different country? Go into that for me. Yeah. So, where do you think my last name comes from? I think it's Middle Eastern, personally. So my both of my parents, well, my mum's born in Australia, and my but of Lebanese background, and my dad's Lebanese. And then I'm、okay. born in Saudi Arabia, in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. So of Leban Lebanese heritage. Okay, cool. Have you been back to Riyadh? Yeah, I was. I, I did go there to visit my dad when he was working there, maybe three years ago. What、um, was your experience of Riyadh? Maybe four years ago. I actually found it so different to the、uh, assumptions around Saudi Arabia. Like, so I assumed that I had to. Wear a headscarf, and it would be highly monitored. My stepmom couldn't drive, so that stereotype was right. So that they had to have a what's that like a driver、it、had to drive like anywhere we needed to go, we had to seek the driver to drive us anywhere. And then, but I didn't have to wear a headscarf, but I did have to wear long a long dress, black dress, and my ankles had to be covered. So that was quite strict. But apart from that, it was like a, it was a lot more open than I assumed. Although the shopping centers, all of the what I, the things that stand out to me is the shopping centers. You can't have a picture of、um, women or men in the posters. So you'd have models of posters of the clothing, clothing's at,、um, on all the shop screens, shop fronts. 
but then all the faces of people would be cut out of these like high profile clothing shops as well, but faceless posters. So that was quite shocking for me. There was never any changing rooms. There was that's not for some reason there's no changing rooms for whatever reason. You can't try clothes on. You can try clothes at home and return them. And then there was also time frames for when women and men could be in the shopping centers. So from like eleven till three was women. And then there was a changeover three to five were men. And in that changeover it was a little bit chaotic in that like the men would get hysterical about having women in this in the space. Also, I found women under the hijab, the niqab, to be very focused on their looks so much and glamorous. Like the amount of makeup and energy that they were putting into their appearance was completely contrary to what you would assume about wearing a niqab. Oh, so, yeah, cool. camel and a rice in rice, and it was with my hands. I was eating camel with my hands. So, overall, you would say it was a positive experience. It was really positive. I loved it. It's completely different to Australia in that there's no trees. It's like it's I it was limitless. You know, the landscape was treeless just and just built up homes in desert in the, in a desert landscape. Landscape was completely foreign to my eyes to what I'm used to. They better grow some trees. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, they'll probably find they'll irrigate water from something or or spend millions always trying to find water and pull it in like and then of course i spend a lot of ta- time in um abu dhabi as well and that's where my half sister was which is a completely extravagant emirates you know the capital of the emirates which there's just so many uh contradictions in that country it's unbelievable so you you're well traveled in the middle east going back to your story as a child I listened to a podcast, uh, an Australian podcast uh, called True Grit or Pure Grit and you mentioned that you went through a very tough childhood. Please could you just um, share that story with us? I just as a child I was raised by a single mother that kidnapped me when I was 2 years old and I was born in Riyadh so my mum had divorced my dad and all of the custody had been given to my dad and my mum was following the conditions around that and had visitation rights to see me in a village that I was put into um in my dad's village where I was living with my dad's parents and then my mum had had the opportunity to visit me every couple two weeks maybe every on a weekend and then she created a plan one of the weekends to steal me from they, they were visiting a she tells a story that they were visiting a sweet shop and she coerced my auntie at the time who was a chaperone to go into this shop and then she organized a driver to speed to Beirut airport in Lebanon and then she got on a flight to Sydney where she called her parents and said that she was that she fled and she was no longer coming back and that she would never she took me and she would never come back then she was ostracized from the family for maybe 7 years and went into hiding and lived in melbourne for a bit and then we went on the public housing listing here in australia and she got i mean in canberra and then finally found a house and was able to resettle in canberra where she spent all of her the rest of her life sorry And yeah and then I was raised without 
my father with the idea that he could come at any moment and take me. So it, we had quite a volatile, oh, my mum and I had a, quite a hard kind of relationship growing up where I felt very alienated by my whole story. So I've had, it's been, I mean, it feels like a lifetime ago, but I was very passionate about all those things and I was a very frustrated, I was a very angry child growing up. I felt really powerless in my life. Most of my life I felt powerless. And I think kickboxing and boxing gave me a sense of autonomy that I had never experienced up until then. And also Islam faith gave me a sense of identity that I never had. It was taken from me from a very young age. So I've had really strong foundations and I'm grateful for that because I could quite easily have taken a different pathway if I if I chose that. I could easily. There were so many reasons for me to give up on my life for, for what I saw of my life. But, yeah, that's why I spend quite a lot of time now mentoring young people because I think I feel like I've pushed through a lot of adversity and know what it is to fight for what you want. Have you ever got your parents together and asked for an explanation as to what happened between you guys and look how it's impacted me? Have you ever got them together and, and had that convo at all? No, because they've got, they're so hostile to each other that for some reason it's within my family, like forgiveness isn't really, even though they represent all these things about Islam, you know, what it is to be a good Muslim, I've been taught that my whole life. Foundations of what it is to be a good Muslim, I have what I've understood is to be a forgiving and loving human being which wears compassion on their sleeve. Like that's how I've understood Islam and yet it's the complete opposite when it comes to family dynamics. There's just so much hate in my family. Like they they find it so easy to cut people immediately and I think that is completely contrary to Islam. It's you, you have to have an open heart. And so I don't even think that that suggestion would even ever be possible because my mum hasn't seen my dad in over 35 years and she refuses to have him in her space in any way. And my dad is on his own thing as well. He's remarried and has his wife. And even though they've created a child, I don't think they could even be in the same room. And it's like so childish and I don't know why any human being would do that. Like, wouldn't you just... I mean, I don't know. I'm not a parent. I've never had a child and I don't have to fight against that. So I don't have perspective. But from what I understand, couldn't you just be in the same room? I don't know. Do you think you need that closure from both of them just to be at more of peace to yourself? I think, and that's a really good question, I think I did need that when I was 18 and now in my 30s I don't need that because my resolution has been in my own self-growth of understanding who I want to be outside of the strictures of my family. And so my emancipation has been dictating my own life and showing compassion to these people. Like I hated my dad, hated every part of him. I hated when he gave me cards. I burnt all of the birthday cards that he sent me. I hated, I hated him. I hated everything about him. I rebelled so badly in my teenage years. I just hated the idea that I had a dad. He wasn't dead, but he was alive, but he chose not to be in my life. I would have preferred if he was dead, you know. That's that's what I told myself. 
But to know that you have a dad that is alive but purposely doesn't actually care for you is the most heartbreaking thing as a child. It's the most hurtful thing. But as I've got older, I have a lot of empathy for him. I understand that he was doing his best. And so he's now in my life. Like we go for lunches every month, once a month. We'll go for a lunch. He lives in Sydney now. And I've decided to love him, and I and I do. I like I love my dad, and I think the best way of understanding my mum and dad's experience is by acting on all the things that I desperately wanted from them, which is like compassion and forgiveness. That's probably where I've been able to have freedom is in doing it myself, not waiting for someone else. You are an absolutely beautiful human being because you've you've been through a lot and. After listening to your story about your father, and as a man, I would want to see my child and be a part of that child's life. And I can't understand your father's thought process back then, but because you're the bigger person and you made your relationship with your father work again, that just shows that how much of a great human being you really are. Keeping it about religion a little bit. I saw that you were part of some kind of TV show documentary, Muslims Like Us. I tried to access it from the UK, but I had no chance. I only saw trailers.、Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to me about that experience and the positives and negatives that you took from that? Yeah, so Muslims Like Us was actually a takeoff of the British version, which actually won a BAFTA award from because I watched the British version. So、it was awful. They, yeah, <laughs> it was awful. Yeah. Absolutely awful. <laughs> I and actually, I think that the Australian, the Australian version tried to tame down that British version because it was very emotive. I can see that it it was. They purposefully chose characters that would possibly be volatile to each other. You could feel the tension because you had Muslims from. The black background, the Asian background. You had a Muslim that was gay, and I knew from the beginning it's gonna kick off. And this is the way the British media is. They thought, right, we're not going to sell their individual stories. We're going to sell their arguments and their、mm-hmm. issues, and that's what they did. Unfortunately, I, I wanted to see the Australian version to compare it because. It's just to see how they produced their version and compared it to ours, but unfortunately, there's no access. Yeah, they don't have it as a recorded part. I, I'm not sure why they're doing repeats every now and then, but it's not accessible at the moment. It was accessible about a month ago, but they keep on repeating it. But so I'll let you know when it's up next time. You're right in that it wasn't as dr- dramatic, and what I think the British version was selling the drama. Whereas the the Australian version wasn't selling the drama as much. There was drama in it, but that wasn't the central theme. I mean, we spent ten days filming, and we were that was like fifteen hours of filming a day at least. You know, the the, the camera was there was two three cameras on us at all times, and that was from the most superficial conversations to the most dramatic conversations.、Um, so they cut out quite a lot of you know. I mean. The amount of conversations I got in and heated arguments—it was intense. So they really did—they dull—they dulled it down definitely heaps. I think the positive of it for me as a Muslim was that I was able to meet like-minded Muslims that had a more 
uh, unique taking of Islam. And what I've been raised with is that there is only one way of understanding Islam, and that is in its purest sense, according to this particular group of people, be it like a Lebanese version or a more strict version, according to my auntie or, you know, that that's been my personal experience. I've read a lot about converts of Islam and I find so much inspiration. I think converts have like, have the best understanding of Islam in my experience. And one of the people that inspired me the most is an Aboriginal Australian who converted to Islam 50 years ago and he's amazing and you know he's an Aboriginal Australian that has such a beautiful understanding of Islam so they're the people that I lean towards there were some very intense Muslims in 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 the house that I was living in so they were triggering but I think from being in a family in which people have really intense understandings of Islam it wasn't shocking for me I just know that when people have that take it's masking a lot of insecurity most of the time and if you can take those layers off, really see the human side of what people are trying to say and we're all trying to seek connection and if Islam is being used as a way to do that and fear of the unknown, then once once you have empathy, like you can, it, it, really, it really takes away so much of that emotion. Finally, congratulations on your social work. I think it's the right job for you. What, what are you most looking forward to in the next 12 to 24 months? I just really, really want to fight. We, I've got an opponent. So I've got the title. I hope, I hope she's training. <laughs> she's going <laughs> to need it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bianca. It's been amazing. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, I just, I just want to fight. Definitely. Thank you so much. You've been amazing. Uh, that's you. the end of the interview. Hopefully, when you do get the fight, it'll be your sixth victory and that's you'll have a awesome. world title. Thank you so much. You look after yourself. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you.